long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland area attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Morning, Jay. How are you doing? I'm good. You know, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty well, too. A little overwhelmed with, with, with work and so forth, but I think that's kind of, you know, natural in this uh, late capitalism sort of cog in the vast machine. Sort of, the economy is humming. You know, yeah, exactly. And the even, workers even are being in, ground underfoot. But, uh, <laughs> but hey, before we get started with this week, there I had a couple of quick announcements for folks. Um, we are getting ready to engage in uh, in a uh, small advertising campaign, given our, our limited advertising budget. And we want to make sure that that money goes to the, the right places. So it's not going to be like a full page spread in, I don't know, like uh, uh, Vogue or something like that. But uh, uh, we want to get your views on you know, where you came from, how you heard about the show. So we put together a really quick, simple, I think it's a two-question survey. Uh, It should take you about a minute. So if you could do that, that would be really helpful to us. And I will put the link to the survey in the show notes for today's today's episode. So is it too late to do a Super Bowl ad? You know, that's what we we should have done. Yeah, yeah, that's that's (laughs) next year. Next year, I think we'll we'll, we'll try that. But uh, also, uh, you know, late last year, Jay and I did our first ever live show at the Cincinnati Podcast Festival. That was a, that was a really good time, Jay, I think. It was. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I think we're ready to do more, do our, our Politics Guys world tour. Uh, that, would be, that would be great uh, to do more live events. So if you're interested in, in maybe having us come to your, I don't know, your school, your organization, your, uh, your bar mitzvah, your whatever, really, uh, then do our, you know, do our thing. Let us know. Uh, we are ready to go on tour and we are willing to entertain all reasonable offers. So uh, if that sounds, you know, <laughs> even unreasonable, you know, offers. Even, yeah, even you maybe take, some so. unreasonable, offers, depending on how unreasonable, but yeah. And if you are interested in that, seriously, uh, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. All right. So now normally this is where I would start in with our first with our first story. But today we're going to shake things up a little bit. And Jay, you're going to be uh, grabbing the wheel here, ripping it out yeah. of my hands and and taking us on our tour of the week. So without any further ado, Jay, have at it. Well, we should we should say this is this is sort of you know by popular demand, yeah. and mm-hmm. because because uh, Mike's uh, as he says is uh, has been very busy lately, but mostly by popular demand. <laughs> uh, so, um, well, our first story is uh, the state of negotiations between President Trump and House Democrats regarding funding for a wall or some other type of uh, border security. Uh, in our last episode, um, as a, if you're if you're paying attention, Trump has acceded to the Democrats' demand to reopen the government while the sides negotiate border security, uh, albeit only for three weeks. Now, there is a 17-member bipartisan bicameral group uh, made up of members of of the appropriations committees uh, from each uh, uh, house. Um, And uh, as of of this airing, one week uh, into it has proven to be less than productive. Uh, Trump still wants the $5.7 billion uh, for expansion of a physical barrier, uh, although he's softening a little bit about whether it's called a wall, uh, House Democrats uh, are still at the $1.5 billion, uh, with uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, indicating that there will be no support for a wall. Uh, what don't you understand about that, I think, was was something of her, her quote. Uh, Democrats preferring border security enhancements like electronic monitoring. Uh, that said, um, Pelosi did make some statements uh, last week. Uh, sort of uh, uh, noting that she might support, you know, fencing similar to what already exists and saying she didn't care what Trump called it. Uh, Trump, for his part, uh, has indicated that uh, he doesn't see any solution in sight. He's not optimistic, uh, but there are some good people on this 17-member body. Uh, If he does not get uh, a compromise to his liking, he is prepared to declare a national emergency, which would allow him uh, to take executive action to allocate uh, defense funding for this wall. Uh, although that uh, that may be constitutionally dubious, uh, so Mike, uh, where where do you see this going uh, next? And and is that is that an accurate uh, description of the state of play at this point? Yeah, I, I think that was great. Um, 
I guess I, I look at this in in two ways. There's the sort of policy aspect, and then there's the symbolism aspect. And on the in terms of the policy aspect, it seems to me that even based on President Trump's own concerns, even if we say admit all those concerns as being entirely valid, the things that he cites again and again, well, building a wall would not be the best use of our funds, the best way to tackle those concerns, things like drugs and human trafficking and, and the sort of things that he talks about. And, but, but of course, this isn't about policy even a little bit. Um, it's about the symbolism of a wall, which is why I don't think a fence, you know, build the fence is not exactly a rousing sort of, right. sort of thing. And so I, it seems to me there's- But, but I mean, we, we have had, I mean, fence, physical border- yeah whether you want to call it for, for years and years. And I'm, I'm trying to think how many hundreds of miles, like 670 something yeah. miles. Yeah. And, and, you know, that certainly makes sense in, in certain instances and can be effective, but in terms of dealing with what the most serious problems are, things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, really beefing up our ports of entry security there and, and, you know, uh, looking into a lot more vehicles that cross over that sort of thing. I mean, those are the things that it seems to me that the, the vast majority of, of the research suggests would be most effective in dealing with these problems. But again, I don't think it's about dealing with these problems. It's about the symbolism of a, of a wall, essentially, and that's a whole, a whole different thing. Um, but, but, but to me, it seems like there's only one way that I, I, I see this ending, or at least the strong likelihood that it's always a mistake, probably at this point, I should realize to try to understand, try to understand what's going on in Donald Trump's mind or what he's going to do next. But uh, I don't see how this doesn't end without the president using his powers to declare a national emergency and then that being challenged in the courts and, you know, it kind of playing out that way. Because it seems to me the Republicans are not going to sit still for another shutdown. And even the president realizes that that's a bad idea. He took it most of the hit for that. So. I think he's kind of prepping the way for for that, and that that's kind of where we're going to be on what's it February fifteenth, I believe. I believe it is. Yeah. So, I mean, would you agree with that? Or- well, I, I think uh, yes and no. Um, there's a lot that I guess we don't know what you know how these negotiations are are going to play out. Um, there there may be, um, you know, some some room. My my concern would be if you are uh, Nancy Pelosi. Um, there's simply no way that you can live with yourself. Uh, I guess yeah, if, you, no. if, if you if you if you if Donald Trump gets uh, one dollar more um, uh, for than 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 the one point five billion, or or that he places uh, you know one one brick or or piece of fencing and can call it a wall. Yeah. Uh, the Democrats, I think I think the Democrats need this issue more than the Republicans do at this point. Um, right. Right. So I, I don't I don't see uh, I don't see a, a compromise there, but you know we'll see. Maybe there's something else we can do. Uh, from politically, I think this this you know Trump. I I think you know we weren't on last week. Uh, at least I wasn't. Um, <laughs> so we we didn't really get to, to hit on this. But yeah, the you know the popular uh, the conventional wisdom is that well Trump lost on the shutdown, and I think that's that's probably right. Um, but he also, I think, has has set himself up better uh, politically going into this because I, I think a lot of people will look at this as the onus is on the Democrats, who said they're going to negotiate in good faith, to come up with some sort of other uh, proposal. And and if there isn't one, well, I, I don't. Uh, I think I, Trump will be able to say, "Look, I told you so. Well, you want how you want me to negotiate with these people? What can I do?" Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think I don't think either side said they would negotiate in good faith. I mean, both sides. Would, <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, the president said they shouldn't even bother if there's not going to be money for a wall. And the Democrats said, well, we're not going to give any money for the wall. And that was kind of going into the negotiations. So to me, this is uh, essentially an exercise in futility. And, you know, it's uh, given given the given the incentives on both sides. So to me, the question really becomes. Uh, you know, can the president actually go ahead and do use, you know, declare a national emergency and, and build a wall? And on that, it seems like there there are some reasonable questions to be raised. I, uh, you know, uh, there was a great article this week in the uh, in a blog called Take Care, as in 
know, the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Basically, it's a bunch of legal scholars uh, that that look into Trump administration stuff. And it looked into, you know, well, it looked into, seriously, it looked into the textual analysis and the legislative history of the National Emergencies Act and suggested that, well, you can make a reasonable case that a national emergency isn't just whatever the president says it is. And it's certainly not a slam dunk sort of thing, but it, it's something that at least there's a reasonable legal grounds to challenge, even if the president can just make up a national emergency in the first place. And then part two of that is, even if the president can declare a, ma- a national emergency when maybe no actual emergency exists or it's very disputable, can he then go ahead and use the military to construct a wall? And and I was talking uh, this week with uh, uh, with Ken. Katkin about this, who, of course, in addition to being a politics guy's host, he's a law professor. And where's, where's Ken on this? He he came up with about six reasons why this was constitutionally dubious. And so, you know, again, I think, but it's not really about whether or not the president can build a wall. It's whether or not he goes to the mat for a wall, yeah. I think, is the key thing. You know, so I don't know how this is going to play out. Certainly, there's a Supreme Court that has a, a slim majority that is very comfortable with a great deal of executive authority. Uh, but, you know, I, so, yeah, I mean, I would think there might be five votes, but again, it would depend on the legal grounds and how the construction would be done and that sort of thing. But, but in any case, it's not about that. It's about the president saying, I will do everything within my power to build a wall. Yeah. Um, now, again, this would be a, a, a weird, weird, uh, Weird set of circumstances, but I I think Ken's right. <laughs> I, I I mean, in just in its practical reality, I think whatever district court this goes through, first of all, it'll be sort of the there is sort of what's called the Trump judicial uh, resistance uh, who will that will issue a nationwide injunction against this, and you know it'll it'll go forward and play out. Um, there's really not much law out there on on this sort of national emergency. I'm trying to think of. Um, FDR declared a national emergency to break a strike in uh, uh, U.S. sheet and tube, right? Yeah, in I'm, fact, I'm, uh, Jay, in fact, uh, Ken and Trey talked about that last week. Uh, Ken did kind of a very extensive sort of analysis of that. I think it was for the for the for the bonus show. It's really pretty interesting, actually. So yeah, I mean, so there are some precedents, but it seems to me that you know certainly there's a difference between the Korean War. And uh, which is in the Youngstown case, and yeah. uh, what we have now. So I'm sorry, is, it would have been. It would have been. It wouldn't have been FDR. I was thinking it was. I was thinking it was during World War II, but yeah, long, I didn't listen. I didn't listen last. Not week, long so, after. You know, so, but, yeah. but, but but yeah. So I, you know, again, I I think that's how this that's how this plays out, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think it puts Republicans, some Republicans, in an interesting position because, of course, Republicans throughout. The Obama administration had been, many of them had been very vociferous, very vocal in their objections to this kind of untrammeled executive power and the president just, you know, declaring these things by executive fiat. And now they're in a position where their president is doing that. And to to their credit, some are saying, hey, we have a big problem with the president doing this. I mean, uh, Marco Rubio called the national emergency idea a terrible idea. Uh, Roy Blunt agreed. There are are a number of Republicans who said, we don't want to see this happen. And while while if there are enough Republicans who agree with that, even though the president can declare a national emergency, the, the Congress can't overturn that, though the president can veto that, and so it would require a two-thirds. Right. And there we are again. Yeah. So <laughs> are, is two-thirds of Congress willing to say that President Trump cannot make up, essentially, a national emergency because he's not getting his wall? I don't think so. Well, I, I think it's—no, it's, um, but I do think congressional Republicans have something of a free pass here. How so? Right. Well, because look, they can say we have we have come uh, to negotiate in good faith, whether Democrats are going to negotiate in good faith or not. Uh, look, we're willing to take, uh, you know, somewhere between one point five and five point seven uh, for some sort of, of uh, uh, you know, border security that would include some sort of physical barrier and can also include, uh, you know, electronic monitoring and cameras and all that, which we can talk about the efficacy of that sometime. To me, it seems sort of 
silly if we'll put a lot of cameras on the border and you know we can monitor them and <laughs> there they go um but uh uh you know there's 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 room there where republicans say look we're we're happy to make a deal but we can't uh, democrats won't make a deal and now trump's going to go do this uh and once he does i think then it plays out in the courts more than it does in the um uh the legislature because you've already tried it in the legislature and if if there was uh, room to to change that that you know it would have it would have been changed so but, but I, I would think that you would you would find that problematic and and concerning in that you know like in the Obama example oh I do yeah, no, okay, very, okay. I, I do very much so and, yeah. and I think as you've said there are a lot of um, uh, Republican members of Congress uh, also a lot of Republican or, or conservative writers who have who have made the same point uh, that uh, first first of all I mean I think conservatism uh, has has sort of a, a innate distrust of a overly powerful executive. Um, uh, there were sort of exceptions made in like foreign policy, you know, type situations, Cold War type situations that we, you know, sort of evolved into that that the founders wouldn't have uh, predicted. Um, but uh, I, I I think there would be some some pushback uh, there, saying. We don't want this uh, just because, uh, you know, next time the president who wants to do this might not be your guy. Um, so I, I think there would be some some uh, certainly some talking points on that. I don't see necessarily uh, it coming to a vote on it, though. So you, you don't think that uh, that those Republicans who are uh, at least rhetorically against it would have the would have essentially the the courage to actually cast a vote to uh well, even well maybe even if they do i mean uh, to me it's it still comes down to kind of a so what right well, i mean because, if you get two thirds the, the, the president either yeah but the president either has the power or he doesn't well no right? but, but if, no, if he can do no, this no, by I disagree. executive fiat, no the, then, the president has the power but also in our system of checks and balances congress can overrule that and so with with the supermajority so it's not a question of does the president have the power necessarily but certainly congress also has the power to overturn that presidential decree and so that's to me is you know how important is this principle of you know uh, limiting executive authority when when people feel it's been abused and is it only important if the you know if the executive is of the other party or is it just in general an important principle and I would hope that it would be in general an important principle. Okay, I I, I again I disagree that uh, I think there'd be a good question of if there is if there is an executive power. Uh, to declare an emergency, uh, can Congress undeclare it? Um, I don't. I don't know that there's ever been any. Yeah, any there is. Of there, actually, there's an answer to that because it's actually in the. It's actually in the National Emergencies Act that is part of the, the Congress, legislation. Okay. It's so, statutory. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Well, then uh, I, I guess then the next question is: though, do procedurally, uh, let's presume Pelosi puts that up for a vote. Uh, would have the votes in the House, regardless of, of whether yeah. Republicans joined or not. Uh, and then McConnell would the... not let it come to a vote in the Senate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly what would happen. There just would not be because, uh, because a vote in the Senate. Because Mitch McConnell is a man without principles. Well, oh, no, I'm sorry. He has one <laughs> principle: Republican power. That's the only thing that matters to Mitch McConnell. Uh, he's a despicable human being. I think, at least as a politician, he might be a very nice guy. I'm sure he's, you know, a wonderful <laughs> family man and all that. But uh, I think he's a tragedy for our for our democratic system. Okay. Well, we'll we'll that that story we'll we'll continue to monitor. Um, yeah. um But moving on uh, next in uh, in what's what's sort of a weekly, you know, so you think your boss is a jerk uh, category. <laughs> Um, uh, President Trump uh, publicly criticized his intelligence chiefs, uh, including Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats and CIA Director Gina Haspel, uh, after they apparently contradicted him on issues relating to Iran uh, and to uh, North Korea uh, and during uh, congressional testimony. Uh, Trump uh, saying that they were naive and uh, that the uh, intelligence community essentially needs to go back to school. Um, now, the story is, of course, as always, a little more complicated. Uh, because Trump has since sort of walked back this criticism, saying that the reports that he heard, the news reports uh, of what these intelligence officials said before Congress, uh, were they were their statements were misrepresented, misquoted, uh, fake news. And now that he's read the whole transcript, he's he's very much in agreement with them. 
Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, I, to me, this is just sort of a more sort of, you know, daily Trump uh, run, run in the run of the shop kind of thing. Um, but I imagine you have some some thoughts or at least want to. Well, you know, I, I think the way you put it is very well. You see, you just sort of, well, you know, I just kind of spouted off before I actually knew what was going on. And then once I knew what was going on, I, you know, it's how, how typically, how typically Trump, I guess he heard something on Fox and Friends that he didn't like and, and boom. No, I think, no, I think it was quite the contrary. I think it was, it was, he heard stuff um, from, it was New York Times or CNN. Ah, okay. And there was sort of the headline was, um, uh, you know, intelligence chiefs contradict Trump. And at, at which point, uh, rather than picking up the phone or, uh, you know, and calling the, the, you know, people who made the, the statements or trying to get a, uh, you know, well, again, this, this, this is what I find a little bit bizarre. Um, why, why wouldn't the administration have someone, I mean, maybe they do, uh, sitting in the committee, um, taking notes. Uh, I'm sure that's, they did. That, that's what, that's what you do, right? Of course I mean, they do. Um, and you call and say, you know, find out whoever, you know, some person who calls, some person who calls the other staffer to say, hey, what happened in committee today? What what exactly do these, you know, uh, folks say um, before you take to Twitter? Uh, and, uh, you know, because, because look, I mean, I, I think Trump's point can be well taken. Uh, the media will pounce on any sort of uh, disagreement perceived or otherwise, even if it's just sort of shaded one way or another. Uh, saying official intelligence community contradicts Trump, right? Um, uh, so, so uh, well, well, but, well, but, well, let me ask you this. So if Donald Trump consistently says that CNN and New York Times are, are ridiculous, failing, fake news, and he sees something from them and immediately responds to it as if it's true, wouldn't yes. that make him a pretty big chump, a pretty big yes. sucker? I, I mean, that, was, that was my <laughs> thought. I mean, that was my thought of... of uh, because, because look, quite honestly, often when I read those sort of headlines, um, uh, particularly from CNN, even more so from you know the, the more left media, uh, that's my first sense is I is kind of an eye roll and like, okay, I wonder what they really said. Um, and uh, you would you would think that, uh, uh, and again, this is this is coming uh, to, to harken back on sort of a, a week after we all sort of hopefully sort of learn the benefit about not making snap judgments uh -huh. about little snippets of things that we see in the media. Um, so uh, no, it was, it was sort of goofy and, and, and disappointing that, uh, uh, that, that Donald Trump did this. Um, but he, he, uh, he assures everyone, everybody's now very much in agreement. They're all pulling on the same, uh, same or, and, um, uh, we're moving forward. So, well, but you know, it seems to me on a more substantive level, that the issue was that, I mean, that in terms of the testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, that I think it's important that we are, it seems, shifting our focus from kind of, you know, non-state terrorism to the threat posed by Russia and China. I think it's important, you know, to point out that Dan Coates said they're more aligned at any point since the mid-1950s. I mean, Russia sells China advanced weapon systems. They share intelligence. They share threat assessments. They're working on, like, missile booster development. Uh, they vote together in Security Council something like 98% of the time. I mean, this is, you know, this is a pretty significant threat. And for, for I think, reasons why we can understand maybe the president isn't really keen on focusing on Russia in particular as much as, as some of these other things. Well, I, I would, I would disagree. And I'll, I mean, I'll sort of make that point if, if okay. moving on to our next story, sure. I guess. Uh, and it's in uh, this week, uh, secretary of, of state, Mike Pompeo and, and others, uh, foreign policy officials uh, have made it clear that the U S would uh, trigger the withdrawal process from the 1987 uh, INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Um, this is part of the, the treaty. There is a provision to, to get out of it, and there's a six-month sort of uh, exit right. uh, from the treaty. Um, uh, during that time, of course, there is, there's always the chance to the opportunity to, to kind of kiss and make up and, and, and bring this back. But this comes, this comes back after um, uh, some significant U.S. Um, well, it's not even findings. I don't think it's in dispute that the U, uh, the Russians have deployed uh, their what's what's called nine M seven twenty eight cruise missiles, uh, which we uh, contend violate the treaty. Um, uh, the Russians have since deployed more and an uh, further battalion of cruise missiles that we discovered last week. Um, so, you know, to me, um, 
first, the, the INF treaty has a special place in my heart, Mike, and you probably know this well. I, I wrote the big, big paper, you know, in, in college um, uh, was was on the INF treaty. Um, but I mean, that that said, I mean, if, if we're not concerned about Russia, I mean, I think stepping out of this treaty is sort of a uh, a message that we won't take Russian cheating uh, lying down. No, I, and, I, and again, you and I, we can we'd also debate the, the wisdom of uh, are, are we better stepping out of the treaty and saying uh, this is it uh, or trying to, you know, cajole them back into compliance? Well, you know, this is this is a case where I'm actually I actually agree with the administration. I think uh, this hasn't just been a recent thing. I mean, uh, for for years, I think the last five or so years, we've repeatedly, and this is obviously dating into the Obama administration, has said that the Russians are violating this treaty with impunity. Uh, as you pointed out, everyone except for Russia basically agrees that they're violating this treaty. Mike Pompeo says that they've reached out more than 30 times to try to make, to try to get Russia to step back from what they're doing. And so at a certain point- And they've stepped up and stepped Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so at a certain point, I think you have to say, well, uh, why, and as the, you know, I think the president put it, why are we basically unilaterally shackling ourselves to this, especially when China has no part of this? And that's maybe our greater concern at this point. They're certainly trying to increase their influence in, in Asia, and we don't have the ability to counter them in certain ways that we might like to because of this treaty. And so I think there are a lot of good reasons to say, well, you know, we enough is enough at this point. So I, I'm, I think there's a, a case to be made that we need to uh, a step back from this treaty. And as you said, it, you know, there's still that six month period, though, the Russians, I think, recently just said that, well, we're going to we're going to get out of this treaty anyway. It doesn't really yeah, matter I mean, if, they they, if they haven't come around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're not going to come around in the next six months. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I see this as I see this as the right move because I think it's certainly important to talk and to use diplomatic means and pressure as much as possible. But at a certain point, you have to conclude, well, this hasn't worked. And, you know, honestly, Russia's in no position to get into any sort of an arms race with the, the EU or the United States. I mean, they tried that once, right. uh, and, it, and it failed spectacularly, and they have a pretty crummy economy. And so if that's what they want to do, they're going to, I think that's a real big mistake for them. Yeah. No, agreed. I think you and I are both on the same page with this. Although, although I would say, to some extent, the arms race that we would be talking about would probably be less expensive than yeah, the arms race that we certainly. were talking about years ago. Um, um, but that, that said, I mean, the whole idea of, um, and, and this, it also, it also puts a new wrinkle into Trump's view uh, of NATO and NATO's view of Trump. Um, right? Because I think, you know, we, we may see more of uh, European yeah. concern now. Um, uh, you know, the, the initial, the idea behind the INF, cause, cause I have to say this because like I worked really hard on that paper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I did, I interviewed all these people like, you know, arms control groups in the state department and, and you know, I got an A, it was, it was a big hit. Um, but so much of the strategic point of the INF was the Russians had significantly uh, more ground force strength than NATO did. And the, the idea was that the Russians could come pouring through the, the fold of gap, uh, which is the, oh, the, fold the strategic, well, strategic chokehold, right? And the whole cold war yeah. would all come down to the fold of gap. Um, and, and NATO did not have necessarily the sufficient ground forces to, to mobilize or, or get people on the ground to fight a conventional ground war. Uh, quickly to stop a, a fast-moving Russian attack, uh, so you would have these intermediate, um, uh, you know, ballistic uh, range that could be fired from Europe uh, into Russia, um, and uh, that the idea then that uh, so what what you know essentially happened was um, we traded sort of some some diplomatic uh, uh, goodwill uh, by saying okay we we will will you know back off these because Russians intermediate nuclear forces didn't make that big a difference in their strategic um, uh, calculus because of the, the superior order ground forces. Now, again, I don't know how that situation has changed. Um, my sense is they, they have much less of a ground force army than they used to. Um, and it would be expensive, but no, not only that, here or there, but I, I lose with this way. I completely agree with you that, um, uh, no more talk. Uh, we should, we should walk away from this treaty. 
uh, and and proudly so. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I think that's part of sort of recognizing that uh, the world has changed, and uh, even from you know post nine eleven, that you know now Russia and China are sort of our key. Uh, hostile nations, competitors, that sort of thing in a lot of ways. And we need to focus more on that and take that threat more seriously. And so I get what you were saying earlier. And so I think that narrative that Donald Trump is basically a puppet of Russia, there are a lot of things that push back against that. And so what I was saying earlier is that just in general, Donald Trump is is understandably, maybe from his in his mind, reluctant to say things about Russia that he doesn't have to just because it gets into the whole collusion sort of thing. And so well, I just you don't want to mention the word just because yeah. it brings up the whole thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, hey, you know, but Jay, before we get to our next story, uh, I'd like to take a moment so we can thank our newest supporters, if that's OK. Please. Yes. Well, we have uh, Aaron and Hillary, both new supporters on Patreon, sustaining monthly supporters. Also, we have Teresa and Todd, who they they were supporters. They they they're currently supporters. And they increased their amount of monthly support on Patreon, and we really do appreciate that. So, thanks oh, everyone. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's always nice. And also, I should mention we've it's, said, it's not it's not that Hillary, is it? It's, no, I'm assuming it's a, a different. <laughs> yes, yes different, okay. Entirely. Well, I don't know because you know uh, it, who knows from the email address, right? right that was the whole yeah. problem. But I'm assuming it's not from a so. private server. Yeah, exactly. Could be anybody. <laughs> so anyway, um, also I should mention we set a new goal on our Patreon page. Once we get to $750 a month in total support, we are going to launch a new feature to supporters where every week you'll get the vote on what we discuss in our midweek show, which should be interesting. I think a lot of fun, actually. And the All reason, right. yeah, the reason we set us up as a dollar <laughs> rather than a number of supporters goal. Scott, this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, and the reason why we did it this way is that way. Anyone who wants to help us reach this goal, whether you're currently a supporter or not a supporter, you can be part of this sort of thing. Everything counts. So uh, we're looking forward to doing that. Like I said, it should be a lot of fun. And not only that, but of course, all of our Patreon supporters get access to our weekly bonus show, my ongoing uh, uh, Nuts and Bolts of American Politics series. Uh, and there are a bunch of other things we put together for supporters at various levels. So to check it out, patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can just go to politicsguys.com slash support. Thank you very much. All right. Well, our next story, and again, this is maybe a little bit harkening back to uh, Cold War days uh, and Russian intervention and so forth. and and just the, the the trouble with Afghanistan. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, uh, the U.S. Uh, has recently uh, uh, concluded some negotiations with the Taliban. Now, the, this this is sort of a um, uh, you and I can have differences. Or are we negotiating with terrorists or not? But uh, Afghanistan had formed a a uh, new government, which the Taliban was not recognizing. Uh, in the the interim, there have been talks between the U.S. on and off. Uh, with the Taliban to try to get them to join into uh, essentially or or accept an Afghan government, um, and those talks have have apparently borne some fruit uh, over the last week or so. Uh, that has then sent some some con- alarms to the uh, government of Afghanistan, uh, which is seeking that uh, the U.S. not pull out precipitously, um, and uh, I think that's that's sort of. Uh, you know the the concern is that there would be an Iraq type situation. Um, the, uh, uh, the current elected um, uh, president of Pakistan uh, has has uh, sent a letter to Donald Trump, who received I think two days ago, uh, indicating that uh, he did uh, not want the the quick pullout and welcomed uh, U.S. forces staying. So what are your, what are your thoughts there, Mike? I mean, Afghanistan is like this is one of those those places yeah. in the world that that goes back to. You know, Alexander the Great had trouble with Afghanistan. You know, I, you know, it's, it, yeah, I, a lot of folks on the left uh, are uncomfortable with U.S. military action abroad. And, and I get that, uh, given especially our track record of, you know, propping up some pretty awful people, some pretty awful regimes for questionable reasons. But it seems to me that this case is different in that. To me, there's a pretty clear humanitarian human rights motive. The Taliban's pretty awful. ISIS is even worse. Uh, and uh, 
yeah, yeah I, I've changed. Well, my- the, the Taliban, I mean, <clears throat> to some extent, is is claiming that they have changed their ways. Yeah, sure, they have. You know, yeah, uh, and I, I am dubious about we, that too. Um, we know but, what's uh, going to happen if we pull out entirely. It's going to be another. It, it, Vietnam type of situation, basically, where where the government is slowly going to crumble. And I mean, it, it, it's going to be bad. And everyone who knows the situation knows that's going to happen, you know, and the Taliban would simply wait out the, yeah. the uh, current government. I think and I think that's that's right. Um, part of these negotiations with the Taliban would have been one of the conditions, uh, you know, to sort of our pulling out uh, uh, and their joining the government is, you know, they promise uh, that they're not going to uh, use, you know, territory to support terrorism, um, but that's kind of a big ask for the Taliban. Yeah. Um, yeah, of, it's not going to so, happen. Yeah, and yeah. but but you know, in terms of the the liberal view, if you just take a look at the vote on that McConnell amendment in the Senate, that uh, passed overwhelmingly, and that was an amendment basically that just urged us urged the the government, uh, the administration, to not pull out, given the importance of you know, strategic importance of having a presence and so forth. I mean, that was a 68 to 23 vote. Yeah. And if you take a look at the votes against, of the 23 votes against, 20 of them came from Democrats. And I'm, I'm counting Bernie Sanders, although he's an independent. Um, and, and all of the 2020 potential Democratic presidential candidates, you know, uh, uh, Booker, Gillibrand, Harris, uh, uh, Klobuchar, Sanders, Warren, that sort of thing. Sherrod Brown didn't vote on that, I should point out, though he might be getting in. But and I think that, busy. you know, go ahead. No, no, I've said he was busy. Yeah, yeah there you go. but but I so I, I get that. But to me, I've actually changed my my tune on this a little bit myself, Jay, because I used to be kind of a go big or go home sort of person, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to be in here and engage in this and, and, and build, help to build a, you know, a, a strong government that can stand on its own two feet or we just get out. But I, I've changed my thinking on that. Um, you know, if we haven't been able to do anything to build a strong central, help build a strong central government in 17 years, it's not going to happen. And I think though, we, it's important that we keep these threats in check and if that means a small, permanent, or at least multi-decade presence, I think that's okay. I mean, we did it in Korea and Japan and Europe on a much wow. bigger level, For yeah. I mean, where we're still there. So if this means that maybe for 20, 30 years or more, we have 5,000 troops or 10,000 troops in Afghanistan, and that keeps things at a stalemate— that that's maybe a trade-off worth making, I think. And this idea of well, we're bringing all the troops home, I think that's that's maybe that that's maybe outdated thinking, given the nature of security threats that we face. And we need to just maybe face up to a new reality where this is just part of how we need to do business. Wow, the neocon Mike uh, here. Um, you know, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's not the sort of conclusion I, I come at come at lightly because these things obviously have have costs. But given what seems to be the you know the uh, the conclusion of people who really understand the terrorist threat and the potential damage that can be done, I think this is maybe uh, this minor troop presence is is a cost that that we should be willing to bear, just like we have in. For, for generations in Korea on a much bigger level and, and in Japan and, and Europe and a lot of other places around the globe. Yeah. And throughout a lot of places yeah. and, and yeah, Southeast Asia. And I mean, yeah, um, I think you're exactly right. Um, and, and again, I welcome you back to the, the fold. <laughs> um, no, I, and there is, there is the argument. And again, this is the division uh, in, you know, sort of the, the Trump's populist vision uh, of, you know, what are we doing there? Let's just get out. Uh, we don't need to be the world's policemen. Um, and, and my response always to those, those arguments, uh, the other response is, look, somebody's going to be the world's policeman. Either you're going to have no police, uh, yeah. which is, is not a good situation, or you'll have the Russians uh, being the world's policemen. Yeah. Uh, or, or the, the Chinese, Chinese yeah. where, where you're regionally talking about. In this case, it would be more likely the Russians. Um, they've expressed interest in the area uh, before. But um, so, you know, I, I think that's that is the, the cost of of, of leadership. Um, and uh, if you want American leadership, this is this is part of it. Um, and I, and so, I yeah, I, that, I, I, I agree. I mean, look, do we need to have a um, a, a full on, um, um, you know, uh, 
yeah. occupation. I mean, and sure. obviously, no, and obviously that's not what we have now, nor have we had that uh, since, you know, probably the, the you know, early 2000s, right, when we had the, yeah. the significant troop troop presence in, in the war. Um, but no, I, I think keeping uh, troops there are good. And, and the other the other point that I always make is this is a, a signal to allies in the region that when the U.S. makes commitments uh, to stability, regional stability, uh, they don't abandon them, them quickly. Yeah, yeah. I so. mean, I think that's the lesson that we learned from uh, from, from from Iraq, right? I mean, in, in in the Middle East, when we you know when we when we pulled out uh, so precipitously, and we just left that power vacuum, and that was a, a a great thing for for Iran. It was a great thing for for Russia, and you know the the, the region is. In many ways, some would argue actually worse than before we got involved in the first place. So we do not want a repeat of, of that sort of thing. And and God knows that region has enough problems already at Afghanistan, Pakistan, and through their hotbed for terrorism. You know. Yeah. So our our last story we moved on to is, and again, this is more. Um, this is a big like foreign policy week. Yeah. No kidding. Um, and maybe that's just because there's been an absence of you know there was the shutdown and now there's not the shutdown. There's less you know domestic stuff. Um, but this is another area where I think you and I might be in agreement, um, oddly, uh, and that comes to uh, Venezuela. Uh, as of uh, two weeks ago, uh, the Venezuelan General Assembly named uh, Juan Guaido uh, as the uh, interim president, uh, uh, as uh, replacing, um, uh, can I say it, socialist strongman sure, uh, I would. Nicolas, yeah, <laughs> Nicolas Maduro, um, uh, who had uh, presided over sort of the, the absolute collapse of of the country economically. Uh, the U.S. was uh, quick, uh, one of the first to recognize uh, Guaido as the legitimate president of uh, Venezuela. Um, and uh, hearteningly, many others followed suit. Uh, uh, Mr. Maduro has uh, not conceded uh, and in fact still controls significant portions of the, the military security forces. Uh, and, and Venezuela is really sort of a tipping point uh, of, of you know potential civil war, um, but you know I think we we ought to talk about this as sort of a uh, a pivot, uh, uh, maybe unintended, maybe maybe of necessity uh, to to Latin America uh, in our foreign policy, which is something we don't typically think about or talk about a lot. Uh, and uh, I think this is the, the Trump administration is seeing uh, this as an opening to lessen uh, Cuban. Um, influence in Latin America and sort of reassert uh, U.S. Um, I don't know. Should we say hegemony? It's uh, a good political science word. Um, uh, but or maybe just U.S. influence in the uh, in the region. So, what what are your thoughts on uh, Venezuela and where where you go from here? Well, I I agree that this was the right move. And and again, there there are some on the left who have. Uh, concerns about the U.S. intervening in Latin America. We have a particularly, I would argue, dishonorable history. But in this case, uh, the, 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 the Venezuelan uh, legislature were, were following the rule of law. And uh, what we did is backed by almost all, by many other countries in, in the hemisphere. So I see this as, as a different sort of situation. Uh, but, but to me, you know, part of it is that this goes back to the Russia uh, situation. Russia has been one of uh, one of Maduro's biggest backers because it's actually in Russia's strategic interest to have Venezuela be a total mess. Um, well, yeah, because, it's in Russia's strategic interest to have most places be a total well, mess. Well, no, Venezuela particularly, because this gets into the energy sector. Uh, yeah. Venezuela has by far the world's largest proven reserves of oil. And because they've been in such a mess for a number of years now, their oil production is way, way down. Now, uh, Russia is also one of the biggest producers of oil uh, in the world. They're in the top, uh, they're in the top 10 there, uh, number eight, actually. And so what's bad for another producer is good for them. And so, I mean, that's definitely part of the calculus for Russia helping out so much, right? And it's also, interestingly to me, at least kind of pulling back Part of the reason why both Russia and Venezuela are kind of crummy economies, you know, um, there's a thing in international politics called the uh, the resource curse. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with that term, Jay. I am. 
Okay, yeah. So basically, for folks who don't know, it's kind of like the the equivalent of somebody who decides, well, you know, I'm a very talented, say, baseball player, and I'm just going to just not worry about getting an education. And I'm just going to assume I'm going to get into the majors and that. And then, you know, you, 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 I don't know, you dislocate something or you break your leg and all of a sudden you've got no plan B. And that's what a lot of these countries are. Venezuela gets something between 70 and 80% of its GDP through, through the energy sector which is just nuts. And Russia is also like somewhere around half between 30 and 50% of its GDP is oil sure. and gas. And so that, that really kind of boxes them in, in a lot of ways. And that doesn't have to be that way. I mean, Canada's the number three, has a number three amount of, of proven energy reserves, and they only get like a little over 10% of their GDP for the energy sector. So you know, it's a matter of diversification. Russia hasn't done right. it. Uh, Venezuela hasn't done it. And that's a big part of the reason why they're in such a mess, you know, a as they are. Well, I'll, mention, I'll, I'll raise another reason. Yeah. Um, I'll drop the S word on you. Um, uh, and that is socialism. <laughs> sort of the, the idea that uh, as, as part of this, I mean, the Hugo Chavez, uh, the plan was, I mean, he essentially, you know, nationalized, ran this, uh, the, the oil and gas industry as sort of uh, a part and parcel of, of right. um, of, of his country. And this, this was a problem. I mean, when you have a country that does not allow uh, businesses to grow organically and, and spread and have other sectors emerge, you get this sort of government monopoly on energy. Um, and, and again, when oil prices were high, uh, Venezuela was, was riding high when that crash came. Uh, there was there was no diversification. And also there was, again, just this complete dependence on the government because there had been uh, little or no uh, private industry because, you know, right. uh, Chavez and, and Maduro, who followed him, uh, did not believe in that model. Uh, so I think, you know, so many economic problems, it's not simply because, oh, well, they have a lot of oil. That's their problem. Uh, it's because of the way they ran their economy uh, as a command economy for, for years and years. Um, well, and, yeah, I'll push back a little bit on that. I mean, I think you, you're right. In part, certainly rule of law and property rights are, yeah. are hugely, and you've made this point a bunch of times that businesses need that, that stability. And if they think that their, you know, their, their investments might be nationalized. Well, right. then that's why would be, I invest in Venezuela? Why would I build a computer place, exactly. chip making place in Venezuela? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, if you look at Venezuela back in the early eighties, Things looked really good there. They were they were one of the you know up and coming countries, one of maybe the top up and coming sure. country in Latin America. And then they had the currency and debt crisis in the middle of the decade, and things really started to fall apart. And and Chavez really was, I think, more of a a populist kind of reaction to. And so I, I would say that's more of a populist movement than a socialist movement. But but, but the point being, no matter how you characterize well, he, he, it, he identifies as socialist. Sure, he would have identified as anything <laughs> to gain power. I mean, I don't think it was about socialism. It was about it was about Hugo Chavez, basically. Sure. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you can't and just. I, start, I would posit that it, it's that way with a lot of socialists. Sure, yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. And you can't just start nationalizing businesses and then expect things to go okay, essentially. So yeah, yeah. I think you're. But but I you know back to American foreign policy. I, I absolutely agree. With, with what we're doing. And I don't know if there's going to be enough pressure that will be brought to bear to, to get him out of office, but, but certainly it's hard to imagine things getting worse than they are in Venezuela. And at some point you would think something has to give, but, uh, and, you know, I hope that, I hope that they actually do bottom out. So maybe they can, you know, uh, bounce back from this just horrific situation they're in right now. Yeah, I mean, I think the the concern comes of of listen if if there is an armed conflict, yeah, uh, because Maduro uh, plainly holds the upper hand at this point, at least, yeah, uh, with control of the uh, you know you don't even call them military there; it's security forces, right? It's you know sort of state police, um, and and to the extent that would be aided by Cuba, perhaps by Russia, uh, would there be uh, a call for U.S. intervention? Uh, to do that, and and you know, you this is going back to uh, sort of the eighteen eighteen thirties, you know, Monroe Doctrine sort of eighteen twenties um, Monroe, Monroe Doctrine sort of idea that uh, the U.S. will step up to keep uh, European or other non-Western continental powers uh, out of uh, South America. Yeah. Um, and and we'll see. I mean, the the 
I don't know that Trump would be willing to do that, but this is something different. I, I will note, again, with, with some concern, um, <laughs> the folks who were were uh, uh, have not greeted this, uh, the recognition of, of the Guaido uh, presidency um, with uh, enthusiasm were, were Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria um, Octavio uh, Cortez. Um, Ocasio-Cortez, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, so, and, and it's sort of the, uh, and again, not necessarily issuing statements of support for Maduro, but but this is very well. We shouldn't be involved. We shouldn't get involved in this kind of thing. And uh, you know, there was the implication in their uh, in their statements that Maduro was was the um, legitimate president. And and I think a lot of people on the right find that troubling. Yeah, so. no, and I, and I think part of that is uh, is that kind of reflexive. Uh, if Donald Trump's administration does anything, we'll we'll just assume it's bad and kind of proceed from that sort of thing because that's our you know that that's our primary orientation. And and so I think yeah. there's. Well, I think I think it's less Trump. I think it goes deeper than that, though. I, I really? think if it was any other Republican president, you would have had the same thing. It's it's sort of the, um, I don't know. We, have, we have, there's the tendency on the left to romanticize um, Latin American uh, socialist dictators, right? I mean, it just, it just, I don't know where it comes from. It's, it's Che Guevara and the cute cap. Um, I think but, but that's I think a thing of the past largely. I mean, I think, I think again, I, I understand there being a little bit of hesitancy because I believe if you look back at our involvement in, in Latin America in general, we've done some incredibly shady things. Uh, right. And so I think it's oh, good I think to- that's all part of the same thing, that they see that as any U.S. involvement uh, must be propping up some crony capitalist dictator as opposed to the uh, dashing romantic heroes of the people. Uh, That's sort of the view. And and this is a different situation in that, I mean, if you take a look at, you know, kind of the rule of law and what the Constitution in Venezuela says, uh, clearly the side of right here is uh, with with the legislature, it seems to me. And so that's different than propping up uh, Batista in Cuba or something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, on, on that on that point of agreement, um, we've agreed uh, a lot. We, yeah, we know, did. Actually. Well, you so, know what? Is the politics used to stop at the water's edge. I guess you, Jay, yeah. you and I still believe in that, huh? Absolutely. So, uh, so yeah. But you know, as soon as we're done with this, Jay, we'll we'll talk a little bit in the bonus show about uh, I think uh, the uh, Cory Booker entering into the twenty twenty presidential race and Howard yep. Schultz maybe maybe not entering and everyone just losing their minds about that, yep. at least on the democratic side and, and maybe some other stuff as well, uh, time permitting. And of course, if you're a supporter that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this, at least if I'm doing my job, right. And if you're not yet a supporter, you can become one by going to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash politics guys also please. If you haven't taken our, our listener survey short, quick, we'd really appreciate it. The link is there in the show notes. And if you could, if you're not already a subscriber to the show, that would be great. And if you could share episodes, leave comments on iTunes, all that sort of thing, we would appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with us, it's mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys. And we are on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producer of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Troy Orndorff, Will Miller, Bruce Johnson, and Wilmer Moreno. Today's show is produced by Jay Carson and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.